Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Unfair Podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy with some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Emma McGarthy, Head of Onfis Sustainable Policy Institute, and today we'll be discussing the role European investors can play to drive ESG transition, developments of alliances such as a net zero asset owner alliance, and also how sustainable finance can be further advanced throughout Europe. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Daniel Bozas, who is Regional Coordinator for Europe at the United Nations Environmental Programme Finance Initiative or UNEPFI. So welcome, Daniel, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, UNEPFI, I mean, we have a very long name, United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative. And I was thinking that it would be good probably to introduce briefly uh, who we are, what we do. So UNEPFI is a partnership between the United Nations and the global finance sector. And we work in partnership with almost 500 banks. We're quite uh, insurers and investors, so 500 banks, insurers and investors that we're almost going to reach that number to help create a financial sector that serves people and the planet. So we're working with them to integrate sustainability considerations into their business, into their main core actions. And we do so by developing guiding norms, alliances to mainstream this integration. For example, the principle for responsible banking, principle for sustainable insurance, as well as the net zero alliances that you're indicating at the, at the beginning. And we work with these institutions to, uh, res- to do research, to create tools, peer exchanges, and ways in which they can not only better understand their impacts, but also set targets to reduce the negative impact that they may have on the climate as well as on society and maximize the positive impacts. Uh, at UNEPFI, we do so by working, again, through banking, insurance, and investment, and through different thematics like climate change, ecosystems, pollution, as well as nature and everything related to the ocean as well. And regarding the, the frameworks, I mean, it's a bit of a comprehensive approach that we have. So as I said before, we have principles for banking, insurance and investment, as well as net zero alliances and coalitions of the willing, as we, we call it, on specific climate-related topics, looking into mitigation, as well as we're coordinating the task for for nature financial-related disclosures, which is looking into into nature. And regarding uh, a bit more on uh, myself, just to round off the the introduction, I take care of Europe. Europe, in the definition of UNEP, goes from everything from Portugal to Kazakhstan. It's a broad definition of Europe. And there you can see that we have the majority of our membership. So 55% of UNEPFI membership is based in the continent, even though, uh, as you can imagine, there's differences depending on the sub-regions within. But we can go a bit more into that later. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, so I mean, just just to kind of dive in with some questions there then. You mentioned the UN convened alliances, including the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, the the Net Zero Banking Alliance, um, and there's also now a Net Zero Insurance Alliance as well. So could you talk me through some of their commitments the successes that they've had so far and also you know maybe some of the challenges that they've been experiencing as they've developed as well sure and i think it's a very timely question given the climate crisis the triple planetary crisis where we're facing so uh, unipify we convene three of uh, the net zero alliances of financial institutions that are the as you mentioned asset owner alliance banking alliance and insurance alliance 
And we work, I mean, they, they unite across the financial sector, the institutions that are committing themselves to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions in the portfolios by 2050. This is in line with the Paris Agreement, with the objective to have a reduction of 1.5 degrees. So what does it mean that they are UN-convened alliances? Well, we normally say that they are UN-convened and member-led in which the UNEPFI secretariat, so uh, people working at UNEPFI, bring together the members in working groups to jointly develop tools and guidance in order to make sure that that objective that they commit to is achieved. So in order to do so, what the alliances do is set science-based targets that need to be respected, of course, depending on the approaches and the the portfolio uh, approaches that they, they have, to do so in a way that manages to achieve the, the, the stated goal. Normally, what we ask is for those goals to be reviewed every five years, aligned with the Article 4.9 of the Paris Agreement. And depending on when the alliances were created, the interim targets for the five-year periods have already been established. Like For example, in the Net Zero Asteroid Alliance, they have interim targets for 2025, given the alliance was launched in 2019. The Net Zero Banking Alliance published the guidance for target setting. Members expect to to publish the targets uh, in November 2022, given the alliance was launched in April uh, 2021. And Net Zero Insurance Alliance, we are still looking into 2023, given that it was launched uh, recently, and we're still developing the the, the key elements. Also, to, to briefly clarify how the alliances are working in the broader context of net zero commitments by financial institutions, it is important to say that the alliances are part of an international net zero network. So worldwide, UNFCCC is a, has established the Race to Zero campaign. There's a global UN campaign that accredits the commitments and sets the minimum standards that the net zero commitments by non-state actors need to commit to. So within the financial industry, all of the financial commitments of the financial industry are under G funds. So the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, that you may have heard quite a lot in COP26 uh, last year, in which we have alliances of asset managers, financial service providers, banks, in which the Net Zero Bankers Alliance, Asset Owner Alliance, and Insurance Alliance are UN convened. So we have a broad framework that is accrediting the Net Zero commitments from the UN side, as well as an umbrella organization like GFUNDS that is convening all of the alliances and UN convening three of those. I hope that is a bit clear. And what GFUNDS does on top of, let's say, UN working as the secretariat with the members and the financial institutions, GFUNDS provides resources which act as a voluntary recommendation and provide guidance for the financial institutions across all of the industry sectors including those that are not convened by the UN, to look into, for example, transition plans. What are the, the elements that the investors and the banks and the insurers should look into at the company level to understand how to reach the, the commitment, as well as the metrics, sectoral pathways, etc. Because we need to be reminded always that the main impact that financial institutions have is not through their own operations in terms of how much they travel, where their energy consumption. It's mainly about the financing that they provide to companies. So they need to work with the companies to transition and make sure that the 1.5 degrees is achieved. So if you want, I can go a bit more into detail into the three UN-convened alliances, unless you think there's something else that I should clarify before going into into that. 
No, yeah, I, I think that would be that would be useful, and uh, and what you said so far is is super clear. I think it it would be good to to maybe touch upon kind of you know some of the obviously fantastic that all these commitments are are being put together, and you know that there there is this movement, but it'd be nice maybe to hear kind of some of the kind of challenges that have kind of happened so far, and. I guess also kind of just bearing in mind the geopolitical landscape that we've had over the last year, kind of, you know, what, what that sort of means for the outlook of the future and their kind of commitments. And yeah, from your perspective, kind of some of the challenges that you've seen as, as they have developed and, and also, you know, maybe how they're overcoming these as well. Sure, sure, sure. So I, I what I was thinking is I, I can go then uh, briefly into the alliances, see how they're working. And frame a bit the challenges and the the key opportunities that are also uh, let's say yeah. laying in the the way forward yeah so, perfect. sure so if we start let's say with the investor side so the asset owner alliance it's an initiative mainly for investors to transition their investment portfolios 2050 1.5 degrees it started in 2019 and it has reached a quite high level of membership as it's right now with 74 members around 10.6 trillion US dollars in uh, million dollar uh, 10.6 trillion dollars in assets under management and we're aiming to grow up to 200 members by 2025 all continents are represented and it is the first alliance in the finance industry that has set those targets to 2025 it does so by target-setting protocols, first published in 2021, the amendment published in 2022. And what it looks is into setting specific portfolio ranges of reduction between, in the first place, 2020, 2025, and uh, in the five years following until uh, we reach 2050. It includes engagement targets, sector targets, financing transition targets, which, as you can imagine, are quite impacted by how the economy uh, looks like and what are the capabilities in the different jurisdictions in which the financial institutions are operating. So if you look into engagement targets, it's mainly to ensure that the clients that you engage with are able to transition towards the operational emissions that they need to be in order to also be in track to, towards uh, reduction 2050. Uh, and the financing transition targets is mainly about, okay, what are the money that we're going to be allocating towards projects that are going to reach those levels of, of emissions. If we look into the current geopolitical situation of how uh, things are evolving, uh, you can really see that there is an increased push and an increased need to diversify energy resources. So while there's many different sectors that, are, that we're looking into when talking about emissions, energy is one of them, including transport as well as manufacturing. So when we look into energy, I think we do have specific approaches on how members should commit, for example, for thermal coal, in which no thermal coal fire power plants are going to be financed. So, for example, if we're looking into energy transition, you're going to see that all of the members that have committed to the Zero Alliance are going to be looking into energy portfolios with such caveats as, for example, no more thermal coal financing, as well as trying to understand how to engage with the clients, how to find, have specific finance targets, as well as sector targets to make sure that in the energy sector, in the transport sector, in all of these sectors, risks are in line with the percentages that have been included in the target setting protocols. So I think that is a bit of how the overarching structure works in terms of saying, okay, you need to reach these targets. 
you have specific ranges in which you need to be, as well as sectoral pathways that you need to also understand or how the clients that you're financing those sectors are operating. So what we see is an increased interest uh, as well in understanding how renewable energies can be further financed, what are the key steps that need to be happening in the way forward. And of course, the targets are uh, clear for everybody that's 1.5 by 2050, and there's no change in that. And in many cases, you know, the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance is looking into asset owners, into investors, and the report of the progress is publicly available. It is clear. All of the members need to report on their uh, evolution, on their changes. And as you can imagine, I mean, this is quite a high level of standards. I mean, in many cases, it has been called the gold standard for climate action in the financial industry, especially for investors, expressed by also the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, at COP26. So this is a bit of the framing on the Net Zero Zero Alliance. It's one of the three alliances. And we can go into the banking. As you can imagine, investors have a very big weight in terms of the financial distribution, but as well, banks are one of the main financiers, especially if we look into Europe, the main financiers of the UK economy. So the Net Zero Banking Alliance is the same in terms of the objective, to have portfolios aligned by 2050 with 1.5 degree scenarios. And it was launched last year in April, already with around more than 100 banks from around 40 countries representing around 40% of global banking assets. And what the Net Zero Banking Alliance does is that when members join, they commit to the guidance for climate target setting for banks developed by UNEPFI, in which they commit to set targets by 2030 and 2050 that align with, a, let's say, a no or low overshoot 1.5 degree transition pathway. It covers everything in the balance sheet and off balance sheet that are being the of balance sheet being developed and they need to be underpinned by scientific and credible science-based uh, scenarios so for the majority of the members that join in the beginning so in april 2021 we're going to see the first targets 18 months after so in october november 2022 and they need to prioritize sectors that are critical in their portfolios so uh, the guidelines outline nine sectors that need to be at least but the targets should be set if you have activities on those, but also on those sectors in which you have large exposure. So the sectors cover everything from aluminum, iron, energy production, transport. And what we're looking into is understanding how the financing of those sectors can be aligned with the net zero targets, both for an inter the interim targets of 2030 and the long-term targets of 2050. Of course, given that the, the work is still ongoing, given that the, it was launched last year, there's guidance being developed for transition plans, guidance being developed for uh, different sectors, and members are working in the working groups to develop those uh, scenarios. What we're looking is into really uh, making sure that members are relying on the latest science and they're able to, to work with this. And in terms of the, the recent developments, uh, what I can say is that the alliance does not support the financing of fossil fuel expansion, uh, but we understand that given the role that financiers have in transitioning the economy, that divestment as a full-on policy to say we do not do any more may be counterproductive when you can actually work with your clients to transition them away from activities that are polluting or that are negative for, for the climate in this case towards activities that are a bit more positive. So in that regard, 
that engagement, that transition is critical. And we do see that with the current situation, it's even clearer that broader diversification is required for the decarbonization of the economy that the world needs. So this is what we understand. Client engagement is critical. Transition plans are, are crucial. And if we go into the, the last alliance, that is the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, it brings more than, well, I believe it's around 30 plus of the world leading insurers and reinsurers that are committing to transition their underwriting portfolios to net zero emissions by 2050. So you may see a lot of insurers that have joined the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, but that is for their investment portfolios. Here we're talking about underwriting portfolios. The concrete commitment is that the way on how to do it is under development. So the alliance was launched July 2021. And what we're looking into is to understand how to articulate what does it mean, net zero, in underwriting policies. So we're working with uh, PCAF, so the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, to develop the first global standard to measure and disclose insured-associated greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, we're expecting to, to see the standard finalized by the end of this year. And as I said before, by 2023, to see the first target setting protocol and the first targets being set uh, by the members. So in that regard, we see there's a big commitment from them, the writing side as well. But we cannot talk very concretely about what are going to be the targets, given that the protocol is still being, being developed. So as a corollary, if I may, of how the Net Zero alliances work, what I wanted to indicate is how this actually works with the overall UNEPFI approach. So at UNEPFI, we look both at risk-related aspects of how climate change and environmental social governance elements should be considered, as well as with alignment approaches, in which if with the risks, you need to understand what are the risks that climate is going to post into your portfolio, as well as if we look into a double materiality approach, what are the risks that you are facing by the financing that you provide to companies that may be hurting the, the environment. With the alignment approaches, what we're looking into is at looking at how the whole financial institution in its entirety, with its portfolio as a corporate entity, is going to transition their financing portfolios to alignment with the Paris Agreement in the case of climate. So for that, what we look into is into different elements that need to be composing how the alliances work in this case. So strong, credible, and formal commitment. So when an institution signs any of the, the, the alliances, it needs to be publicly committing to the level of ambition that the agreement sets. So in this case, 1.5 degrees by 2050, with clarity on how the portfolio is going to, to work with this and also committing to the accountability parameters, the disclosures that are linked to the specific alliance. So there's, there's the documents that outline how this is done through the, through the alliances. The, the second element it would be a strong mandate because the commitment needs to be signed by the CEO and implemented from the C-suite level all towards the, the operations depending, for example, in the Asian Alliance, the chief investment officer, et cetera. Then we have the guidelines. That would be the target setting protocol, the guidelines for target setting by banks and the upcoming for the, the underwriting, the insurance underwriting industry. And the targets are based on this specific guidance and these protocols. And in order to make sure that there's a level playing field in terms of how the financial institutions are going to be committed. 
course, taking into account that there's different levels of ambition as well across continents. So this is a global approach that can be fine-tuned to both the institution and the jurisdiction in which they are operating. The fourth element would be a robust reporting and monitoring framework that is publicly recognized and it ensures accountability over time. So this comprehensive reporting progress is key in each of the alliances. And you can see that the report on progress for now are only available in the, the uh, Aster Owner Alliance. They will come for the other alliances as soon as the first targets are set. And I think that in terms of how to work out the different details, so it would be the last element in, the, in those key criteria, would be to make sure that you're committing with your peers. So you're working together, let's say, uh, brought together by UFI, but working together with other institutions. So you're able to ensure that you're really looking into something that is implementable by financial institutions and you're not alone. So any financial institution that is listening, I think it would be interesting to to find a bit more information. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. Um, if I may then, I mean, we, you kind of touched upon some of the challenges I think there, and it'd be interesting to know how the alliances may be working with other groups to support your members in terms of, so you mentioned disclosure, disclosure expectations, target setting, a huge issue with that is getting the data. And, you know, when we have conversations with financial institutions, there's always this big thing of the, you know, we don't have the data to disclose. And, you know, there's working with corporates to get that information. So I, and another thing that we're talking about a lot is kind of the convergence of reporting standards and, and the challenges of kind of finding finding that as well. How then, how then is a big question, but if and how are you supporting the members of these various alliances with kind of tackling those problems, with helping to helping to fulfill disclosure expectations? Yeah, and, and, and kind of helping helping in that kind of pathway to, towards transition. Yeah, sure. I mean, as you as you can imagine, when we are working with financial institutions, I think I mentioned it a bit briefly before that when they make the commitment, of course, is on their portfolio. Yeah. Uh, but the portfolio means that they need to actually shift their financing. Right. In some cases, like with uh, banks, it may be complicated to, complete, let's say, to completely extract yourself from a financial operation and you're engaged in a long-term relationship with a client. So when you we work with these institutions, we understand that completely, that corporate disclosures from the companies that they're financing or even disclosure that may allow them to understand better how their residential real estate portfolio is looking like. So disclosure, for example, of EPC certificates in Europe. All of those elements we understand that are critical. And uh, we are collaborating, for example, with GFANS to understand what are the concrete protocols that need to be understood, what are the key kind of information that you need to ask to your clients to, to get. And we work at this with both, let's say, client engagement perspective, that would be the, the, that's in which you have a client institution, you need to ask specific information in order to continue providing financing. And many customers, especially large companies, are quite used by now to provide this kind of information. In other cases, for example, at jurisdictional level, if you have an implementation like in Europe of quite concrete level of disclosures, we do see or we do expect to have a broader understanding, for example, companies that, that report on the NFRD, the upcoming CSRD, or EU taxonomy disclosures, that there will be information there that is going to be useful. So we do see these elements 
in other cases, for example, in terms of collaboration, I think it's very clear the collaboration on the Net Zero Insurance Alliance with PICAF to concretely understand how to uh, work out the missions and the, the targets to be, to be set. So in those cases, we also see how financial institutions would need to get the data, the more relevant data out of all of the different uh, ways that they can, including collaborating with uh, data providers that may be able as well to better understand how some companies may be performing and provide information. So yeah. I think that is a bit of the, the, the more complete element, as well as different requests that jointly, for example, the Aceronia Alliance does in terms of understanding what kind of data is needed and what do the clients need to, to disclose. Yeah, yeah. I think this then ties into one of my other questions, which is on kind of taxonomy framework. So obviously the, the UNEP has developed in district guidelines, as you just said, and templates to kind of operationalize and, and implement the EU taxonomy. So could you tell me a little bit more about kind of how you've been testing the application of the EU taxonomy on banking products and, and, and kind of how that taxonomy is, is being applied to, to bank lending as well? Sure, sure. I think this is still we're going to be uh, discussing about uh, climate, given the, the EU taxonomy for the moment covers uh, mitigation, climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation. So if I roll the tape a bit back, as we said before, the majority of the members of UNEPFI are in Europe, and the majority of those European members are located in the European economic area. So countries within the EU and EFTA that apply EU regulations. So they are committed to, they're mandatorily needing to apply EU financial regulation. So the EU taxonomy, as you may know, it's one of the key milestones, or maybe the stepping stone of the EU sustainable finance strategy, which is a classification system for economic activities that can be considered environmentally sustainable. That means that they need to reach specific levels of performance in order to be considered either contributing to climate change mitigation or adaptation. In the beginning, given that the other four environmental objectives as well as social taxonomy or an, an extended taxonomy are still in the plan. So this means that for an economic activity that is in line with the objective of the EU of net zero by 2050, and 55% reduction of emissions by 2030, it needs to comply with three aspects. That is substantial contribution, so reaching a level of performance in line with those objectives, as well as doing no significant harm to the other environmental objectives and complying with minimum safeguards on uh, human rights and uh, social aspects. So how is this regulation impacting banks? Well, it impacts banks because one of the user obligations of the taxonomy is for financial, well, for, for institutions in Europe, be it financial, non-financial, to disclose the percentage of their alignment with the EU taxonomy in their operations. For uh, non-financial corporations, it is their capex, opex, and turnover linked to uh, taxonomy aligned activities. And in the case of financial institutions, depending on which financial institution, is the percentage of their financing that is going towards economic activities that are taxonomy aligned is in the percentage of their, their overall financing. Mm. So this means that there is a disclosure obligation both from companies and from financial institutions to understand their taxonomy aligned. So within this framework, let's say, we started already in 
late 2019, before this uh, user obligation was mandated, to test the EU taxonomy. This was in a report that we published in 2021 to try to understand, okay, what are the key elements that we need to take into account in order to apply the EU taxonomy for banks? You can find it online. It's called Testing the Application of the EU Taxonomy to Core Banking Products with High-Level Recommendations. And that report was the basis for what we did afterwards during 2021 and 2022. There are practical approaches on applying the taxonomy to bank land. So what we did in that report was to look into mandatory application of the taxonomy, so the disclosure front that I was indicating before, as well as the non-mandatory application with voluntary approaches of how to use the taxonomy beyond, let's say, the mandatory use. This is a way that we have to work with financial institutions in order to test financial regulation, both for its mandatory application as well as trying to understand how to expand its usage. So on the mandatory application, what we did in the in the report from 2022 is to clarify how taxonomy alignment reporting would be conducted with some clear explanations of how this should be done, explaining the templates that have been put forward by the regulators. So the EU taxonomy uh, Article 8 Delegated Act includes all of the templates that financial institutions and non-financial institutions need to comply with in order to be providing this information publicly in their mandatory disclosures. So what we did is to work work through those templates, trying to understand what is the information that is going to come from the clients that then you need to use to calculate the the percentage of your financing that is going towards those activities and to put it in a clear way with some also decision trees to understand where is the information coming, what does it mean to be taxonomy eligible, taxonomy aligned. I'm not going to go into the details, but it's all of the elements that need to be undertaking in order to comply with the uh, regulation. Then the other parts of the report, the other two sections that are going towards the non-mandatory application of the taxonomy, we're looking into two aspects that since our, the publication of the report has also seen some clear evolution uh, within the European landscape. The first one is on adapting internal frameworks to the EU taxonomy. So how to gather EU taxonomy information from counterparties that do not need to mandatorily report, at least for now. In the case, for example, of SMEs and non-EU clients, they do not need to report information mandatorily at this stage. So we're, ask, we're providing banks ways on how they can actually do it. And in the case of, of banks, for example, they may need to also collect mandatorily SME information on what is called the Banking Book Taxonomy Alignment Ratio, BITAR, that the European Banking Authority in their Pillar 3 disclosures will be releasing. So this was like a trying to understand how this could be done, as well as providing a checklist on minimum safeguards, because minimum safeguards, there was no clear that way on understanding its compliance besides the company undertaking an assessment to say, okay, we are compliant with this. And now there is a more concrete approach that has been released and is being consulted by the platform, the EU platform of system of finance on how the minimum safeguards compliance could look like. So uh, I think they're still consulting. So if you're interested in, in providing input, you could do so. So we provide a very simple uh, checklist on how banks could do this. And then the final section that connects briefly as well with transition that is how to use the taxonomy for transition financing. So connected with what we were saying before in terms of the target setting and how uh, financial institutions could look into the carbonization pathways using, in this case, the EU taxonomy as a possible way of doing so. 
so what we provided in that last section is two tools. One that is called a taxonomy misalignment tool in which financial institutions can ask extra information to clients, information that is not necessarily mandatorily in the disclosures, but could help to understand what is the level of misalignment with the EU taxonomy objectives. This means that if a company, for example, is compliant with one of the three aspects that I indicated before, like for example, they're compliant with the substantial contribution, but they're not compliant with the do not significant harm and the minimum safeguards, is not the same that a company that is non-compliant with all of those objectives. So what we try to provide is a more complete framework on how to use your client engagement to extract further information that you could use for expanding your taxonomy alignment. So this is a very concrete approach. Uh, and then we provide also a KPI uh, making tool in which they can look into what is the level of misalignment and how they can build KPIs on that front. We also provided some interesting recommendations on transition plans, etc. Before, in many cases, the, the European Sustainability Reporting Standard Drafts were developed by, by EFRAC. So it was fiction banking exercise on how to provide further information that the banks could use from their clients to, to better look into their portfolios and the taxonomy alignment within them. And I think that is the, the, the summary of the three key sections of the report, how we were testing it. So we work with 25 banks across Europe, as well as with banking associations. So we did this in collaboration with the European Banking Federation and EY. So uh, we work with this group to, to really understand what were the key issues, the, the pain points, and how to make sure that we were tackling issues that not only were challenging on the mandatory application, but also could be helpful to get out for other applications, in this case, transition financing and internal framework adaptation. Very, very interesting. So as, as you might know, we're, we're running an event in a, in a few weeks, SBI, which is basically looking at Europe's place in kind of driving sustainable standards internationally. So I wondered what your, your perspective is in terms of the role that European financial institutions can play in the ESG transition and kind of how you think the sustainable finance agenda in Europe can be advanced and the kind of key key priorities there. Okay, so what I can say with regards to, to Europe, and, and we rewind a bit again and to say that 55% of the members of Finepify are in Europe, that makes it quite clear in, let's say, across our initiatives. So this remains true for the membership at the PRB, PSI, Net Zero Banking Alliance, Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. There's a big presence of European institutions. This means that there's a lot of European institutions setting targets. So we look, for example, the results of the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, we have many European institutions that have set engagement targets, like Aviva, sector targets, like Pension Denmark, etc. Those short-term and long-term targets. The similar applies to Net Zero Banking Alliance, where we have the 10 largest banks in Europe, as well as the 10 largest banks in North America, having signed, with many of them already setting and publishing targets. So we, you can already start seeing a trend in which European institutions are, in many cases, due to their already existing sustainability commitments, their regulatory environment, or even their the, the cultural dimension in which they are embedded, in which you know, responsible banking, responsible ways of undertaking their business in an environmentally, social, and governance way are helping to drive that element. Of course, 
this varies a lot depending on which specific areas we're looking into. So Europe is an overwhelmingly clear that climate is the priority, where European financial institutions have a very high level. I think like more than, yeah, I have the data, more than 50% of banks, European banks that have signed the, the PRB, have set as main priority climate, or at least as one of the priorities. So it's a very, very large number, climate change mitigation, with adaptation being the second, as well as financial inclusion. Meanwhile, in the other regions, you can see that the balance is a bit different. Climate change mitigation is not so critical in importance, while adaptation, as well as social issues and financial inclusion, especially, or gender equality, gain more importance. This is also true for the different Europe's. It's not the same when we're looking into Northern Europe, that we're looking into Eastern Southern Europe, or even the, the, the other regions where we are not so uh, present. So this means that we have a spear point in Europe that is really looking into the, the, the key elements on how to commit into climate targets, commit to, to sustainability to their whole operations as an institution. And of course, this pushing the rest of the world as well to, to react. If we look into regulatory developments, if we look into what is happening now, for example, with the ISSB, the SEC in the US, as well as with EFRAG in Europe, you can see what are the different levels of standards and the different approaches that are being followed in the European continent with regards to the rest of the world, the Americas, Asia, Africa, etc. And what can I say? I mean, it makes me quite proud as European coordinator to be working with institutions that are very advanced, that have very clear commitments, and at the same time are trying to push this agenda forward across the, the board. But again, we are a global institution and our principles are globally applicable. So it doesn't mean that we're only looking at the most advanced examples. And we're truly interested in working with developing countries and to make sure that globally applicable principles are for everybody and they are usable in any jurisdiction and in any kind of institution, but with the same level of ambition. So I think that is a, a quite clear message and we're trying to really work with everyone. In Europe, of course, we have, if I may say, I have the, the, the luck to work with institutions that have such a high level of development. Yeah, and I think this is maybe a, a discussion for another time because we're, we're running out of time, but I think that ties into the whole discussion of kind of interoperability uh, of standards and taxonomy frameworks and kind of taking in local contexts. And you, you mentioned the kind of issues with social, uh, you know, and kind of financial inclusion and, and things like that. And yeah, I think that's a, a very important and interesting discussion to be had. But as I say, we're running out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> but if anyone listening is interested, we will be streaming the event uh, on the 15th of September, which looks at sustainability standards. We probably will there touch upon a little bit more the kind of issues or, or kind of driving convergence and interoperability as these standards develop. But Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there, is there any kind of final things that you would like our listeners to take away before we go? Yes, very briefly, just to say that if you're a financial institution or you know any financial institution that is interested to uh, continue working on their path towards sustainability or to start working on sustainability, that we at Tinopify were more than happy to uh, welcome them and help them to achieve their well, their possible future commitment to, to, to towards sustainability. So thank you very much.
Amazing. Thank you so much, Daniel. And thank you to our listeners. You can subscribe to this and all our other OnFit podcasts are on our OnFit channel or on Spotify and iTunes as well. So thank you so much. And hopefully speak with you uh, again, Daniel, to continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you for listening to the OnFit podcast. 